Welcome everyone to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Chris Whalen, who's the Director of Neuroscience Data Science at Johnson & Johnson and the Chair of the Pharma Proteomics Project, which we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about today. If you're not familiar with it, they put out an amazing paper. It's a multi-pharma industry, academic UK biobank collaboration that is um, certainly the biggest uh, of its kind from an integration of genetics and proteomics and deep clinical data. So I'm really excited to talk about genetics in the context of drug discovery and proteomics more broadly today, and also to dive into this exciting new project, which I'm sure you've been working on for years that has finally bore some fruit. So Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, fantastic to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, my pleasure. I wonder if we could maybe start by just getting a little bit of a tour of your background. Where have you spent time? The arc of your research career would be really interesting to just hear that for people who aren't familiar with you and your work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that you and I have switched our geography a little bit. So I'm based in the States, but I did I did all my training in Ireland. So mainly neuroscience. I think I fell into genetics about halfway through my PhD. So I probably consider myself a neuroscience researcher a little bit more than genetics, but I, I do a mix of both. Did my postdoc in California. That's what brought me to the States. Worked with the Enigma Consortium. That was sort of the perfect uh, place for me to go because they were combining uh, brain scans with uh, with GWAS and trying to do that at large scale through meta-analysis. And just as I was ready to, to head back to Ireland, I got a, got a call from Pfizer uh, in 2016. They were looking for a neuroscience geneticist, which I, I didn't realize was a real thing until until I got that email. So I thought it was a Thought it was a scam at first, but I went over uh, to Boston and yeah, so this that was sort of the early stages of pharma integrating geneticists more systematically into their into their sort of R&D pipelines. So been in industry ever since, I was about two years at Pfizer, four and a half at Biogen, and then more recently joined J&J. And uh, yeah, that's sort of a whistle stop tour of my background. I don't know much about the Enigma project, brain scans, genomics. What what did you learn there? What's, uh, were there any big findings that you all came up with out of that project? Yeah, Enigma was fantastic. In many ways, it was it was a little bit like a proto UK biobank. I think it's it's now a little bit more commonplace. There's you know something like fifty thousand scans in UK biobank whole body MRI, but but back in the sort of early twenty tens or late late two thousands, it was sort of unheard of to have uh, imaging studies at that scale. So Paul Thompson got together with a number of collaborators and put together this uh, enhancing neuroimaging genetics meta-analysis consortium where the idea was to you know take all these different scans that came from you know different different uh you know 1.5 tesla three tesla different head coils etc but get everybody to process their data in in a harmonized way using the same protocol and then meta-analyze the results so it was a very clever way of doing large-scale studies before we had the, the, the sorts of resources that you see with uk biobank and FinGen and all of us these days is there a good understanding of how common genetic variation influences brain structure? I, I would guess, you know, you probably had a combination of some healthy and, and less healthy brains maybe in that project. But I, this is an area I know very little about. I mainly worked in developmental disorders in my PhD where obviously there's, you know, important genes where things go often catastrophically wrong in the brain. But I know very little about actually healthy brain function and, and what genetics drives or doesn't drive there. No, that's it's an excellent question. No, we do we have identified a lot of uh, common variants that that are that influence um, uh, brain structure, brain function, um, and I think the issue is you know it probably goes without saying the more complex the the phenotype, the the smaller the effect size, and the greater number of variants to uh, to identify. So we have a pretty big library of 
associations with, you know, cortical, cortical thickness and subcortical volume and cortical folding, so many different brain imaging derived phenotypes. But making sense of them is, you know, it's still very much an active, active process. Figuring out which of the genes we might be tagging, which of them are having the majority of their impact in the developmental stages, which, uh, and then which are maybe having an impact still later in life is, is crucial to, you know, to somebody like me who works within an, an industry context. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and we'll probably come back to brain scans later. I'm interested to learn more about how they're, how you might be using them in UK Biobank and others. But I want to talk a little bit first broadly about genetics and drug discovery. You've been in a couple different industry positions, integrating genetics in, in different capacities. How is it being applied today? What are some of the challenges? And then maybe you can talk a little bit about where where proteomics fits into this whole picture as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to. So in, in my work, I place a heavy focus on drug target identification and validation. And needless to say, when we refer to targets in drug development, we're, we typically mean the proteins that we're developing the drug against, uh, the proteins that we want to inhibit or to agonize or to more generally change the functions of in order to produce a therapeutic effect. And there is a very large drug target graveyard, I guess I'd call it, in, in pharma. I think 90% of drug candidates fail uh, once they get into clinical trials. And that rate is probably higher uh, for, for neuroscience, the area I work in. And we have very few tools to predict a priori uh, whether a drug target is actually going to be successful or not. Genetics happens to be one of the few tools that we have to somewhat systematically make those predictions. So I, I know that you spoke to Matt Nelson recently, and he's published a paper on this from GSK. Emily King has published a paper from AbbVie. And in both cases, they sort of retrospectively looked at the uh, drug development pipelines at their respective companies and asked of the, the drug programs that made it to patients that turned into medicines versus those that didn't, which had supporting evidence from GWAS or ClinVar and which didn't. And the conclusion pretty unanimously is that the drug candidates that have supporting evidence from human genetics are at least twice as likely to succeed. So I think based on uh, sort of those, those uh, inferences, those observations, it's become more commonplace now to have you know, fully-fledged R&D uh, genetics teams within most uh, large and smaller scale farmers. And in terms of the role of uh, proteomics, I think that that's an interesting one. I think that genetics is far from a perfect tool. I think eight years working in pharma has sort of humbled me a little bit in terms of how far we can take genetics. Oftentimes, I've, you know, I earlier in my career within pharma, I, I've come to the biologists within the, the, the research units or the therapeutic areas, and I, I've said, oh, we've, we've got a, a hit for, for gene X, and it's very, very strong. And we're very confident that this is the, the causal gene. Let's work on it. Let's try to you know, work up the biology and try to turn it into a, a new drug program. And the response oftentimes is there's no way we're touching that pathway. This is a really dangerous pathway. We're not going near it. And it's, it can be a little disheartening because we, we, you know, spend so long, we, we, we spend months, you know, putting together a very systematic, robust finding. And we have very high confidence that this, this gene is the gene that we want to go after for disease X, you know, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, et cetera. But oftentimes we just get a straight, no, we can't do that. That's not a pathway that we want to touch on. So that made me take a step back and appreciate that genetics is not necessarily the, the magical tool for drug discovery that we might try to frame it as, at least as a self-contained tool. I think it needs to be uh, beefed up with additional, additional resources. And that's where proteomics came in, because ultimately most of our drug targets 
are proteins. Not all, but the majority of our drug targets are proteins. So the idea came about to try to more systematically integrate proteins into this genetic guided drug discovery process. And I think that that light bulb went off on a, a, a pretty pretty good moment because the proteomics technologies up until the last two or three years have not really captured that many proteins. I think that they've really scaled up in the last two or three years, going from being able to capture a couple thousand to now, you know, some logic I think can capture 11,000 and only can capture 5,300 at this point. And until that point, we mainly had mass spec to try to capture proteins at, a, at the same level of, of breadth. And mass spec was, was uh, low throughput and sort of, you know, we couldn't really scale to the level of UK biobanks. So this was a good time for the light bulb to go off. And, you know, it, it was a good opportunity for pharma to sort of take the, take the chance to be the innovators. Um, we'd already invested a lot in UK biobanks uh, genetic resources with the exome sequencing consortium and more recently the whole genome sequencing consortium. And so we felt it would be a good time to try to form a new consortium centered around uh, proteomics. So that's sort of where the inception of the, the proteomics project came from. And so when did that uh, when did that group form? Just to give people a sense of the time it takes to pull these things together. When, when did you remember first having the conversations about starting this? So rough estimates, I think that we, the exome sequencing project was sort of winding down towards the end of 2019. And we, we got together the eight companies involved in that. And that was quite a fruitful collaboration. Everybody enjoyed working with one another. And we said, well, is there anything else we'd like to do? And took a little bit of a straw poll, you know, epigenetics, metabolomics, et cetera. But proteomics came up, you know, above and beyond the most popular modality to pursue next. So we, we brainstormed a little bit and then started to gain steam towards uh, the beginning of 2020. We started to get quotes from uh, the two major players in the field, Olink and Somologic. And by probably by Q2 of 2020, we had enough momentum where we could start putting contracts together and you know figuring out how much it would cost and all the logistics and everything else. And that was right around the time the pandemic hit. So the majority of the project was all done over over Zoom and Teams. So an interesting way to get, get things kicked off. But I think that you know the official date that we, we everything was executed was at uh, the end of 2020, November. And then the whole thing got wrapped up, I think, beginning of this year. So pretty quick turnaround, all things considered. Yes, actually, that's a lot faster than I was expecting. And and for people who are interested in Olink, we do have an episode, episode 97. We won't spend a whole lot of time today going through the technology, but you can listen to Cindy and I talk for almost an hour about how proteomics works in general. But yeah, Olink was, the, I think, the technology focus here. You tested, the consortium tested about 54,000 UK Biobank participants for context of the about half a million participants. And I suppose there's some, you know, probably some thinking about whether or not to scale that up, but maybe you can talk a little bit about what you found. And I'm interested in any of the major surprises uh, based on what you knew going into the project and then what you, what it actually uh, turned up. Cause I think it's at a pretty big scale, both in terms of the number of participants, but also the scale of proteins you're able to assay in one go. Um, yeah, I'm happy to walk through that. I, I often tell people informally, I probably shouldn't say it on the podcast, but I'll say it anyway, is we, we focused on what I would probably consider to be the more boring aspects of the collaboration for the paper, because this was a pre-competitive pharma collaboration. There's so much potential from this data set in terms of finding new drug targets and new biomarkers that we didn't really touch upon in the paper itself. The paper mainly 
uh, focused on the resource, you know, how we built the resource and then the initial sort of GWAS of the proteins that we measured. So, you know, in, in brief, firstly, we, we, we found, I'd say that the, the paper could be broken up into three main domains. You know, we, we looked at associations with basic demographic factors and the proteins. Um, we ran a GWAS of all the proteins. That was the most substantial piece, but we also did some uh, low-hanging fruit um, associations with diseases as well, cross-sectional associations. So for the the first piece, we found you know associations between proteins and demographic factors, BMI, uh, liver and kidney functions, and as well as the, the top 20 prevalent illnesses in UK Biobank. And I'd say some of the more notable associations there uh, included increased levels of inflammatory cytokines like CXCL17 in depression. This is something that has been sort of published on a smaller scale before, but we were able to see this in a quite large scale. And one of the proteins that I thought was interesting that kept kept showing up for, I think, 18 of the 20 illnesses that we looked at in the paper, but has has shown up uh, more broadly when we've looked at, looked at it outside the paper in the context of uh, hundreds of additional illnesses is GDF15. It's, so it seems to be kind of a, a protein of tagging cellular stress, maybe mitochondrial function, and appears to be sort of more of a, it, it seems to be induced, induced after injury and could be more of a, a general marker of, of, of health because it's upregulated across so many, uh, so many health conditions in UKB. So that was the first part, looking at demographic uh, and disease associations. And then next, we found that the proteins in combination do an excellent job of predicting age and predicting sex, BMI, liver function, and kidney function. So, you know, in terms of developing uh, prediction tools, these proteins are very good at predicting those different factors. But probably the biggest the biggest thing we did was build a PQTL library, which I believe is now the world's largest PQTL library. It's a collection of over 14,000 associations between commonly occurring gene variants and protein levels. And I guess why is that important? I think it provides a substrate to conduct uh, Mendelian randomization downstream, you know, co-localization. We didn't really touch on that. I think it was sort of a, an intellectual property minefield uh, for yeah. 13 different farmers collaborating. All we did was focus on PCSK9, and the reviewers uh, understandably gave us a hard time on that because it is, you know, the, the most obvious example that we could choose. But we sort of had to choose that just to show here's how we could use this data set. You know, here's PCSK9. We validate that causal relationship. Everybody expected us to validate that, but it's a proof of principle to show that there's, you know, there's almost three thousand proteins that we have conducted GWAS on here. There's a lot of untapped potential to find new causal associations, potentially new drug targets. And so a lot of the paper kind of you know, talks about that. We also look at some more sort of basic biology, we tell some more basic biology stories. There's a, a paragraph in there about the, uh, the complement system and how there's an interesting sort of interplay between local and longer range effects uh, using the trans-PQTL. So you'll see proteins that are involved in later stages of the complement pathway being affected by Variants that sit within uh, genes that are in the earlier stages, you know, and vice versa. So, lots of interesting sort of complex stories that we're we're disentangling with that data set. Is there are there plans to scale it up, uh, or or if not, or if it's still in the works? I'm wondering if you could speculate a little bit on what what you might discover with more scale. I mean, you you've got uh, obvious kind of power improvements as it grows, but I'm also wondering about things like ancestry specific. PQTLs that might have some window into biology that's specific to particular ancestry groups or, or any other kinds of things that might shed more light with greater scale? 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. So we got the the last uh, batch of data in January of this year, I think. So we've been we've been talking since January about what we'll do next, and the discussions have been interesting. I don't think that we've come to a consensus on what to do next. It's certainly, scaling up to the full UK biobank has been an area of very active discussion. I think the issue right now is, is, is cost, getting the price down or something like that. It'll be a very expensive study. And also the technologies themselves just seem to be developing at a rapid pace. You know, I mentioned that Somalogic does 11,000 now and only 5,300. I mean, a year ago, it, it was, you know, several thousand less than that. So we would expect the technologies are probably going to scale up even further in, in a year's time. So trying to figure out when the right time is to do that, to scale up to 500K in UK Biobank is just the, the outstanding question. But certainly when we put together this application uh, to UK Biobank, we framed this as a pilot study for the initial 55K. So there is still absolutely scope to expand further. But you already touched on on that already, Patrick, about ancestry-specific PQTLs. We, we touched upon that a little bit in the paper, showing that um, there are certain PQTLs that we identified in individuals of African ancestry, for example, that weren't as enriched in the European populations. So that's an area of active discussions as well. Do we want to expand into other cohorts that are more diverse than UK Biobank before we do the whole 500k? Still an area of discussion, right? Also for me, more, more personally, I think most of my job is centered around supporting the neuroscience R&D activities at J&J. So the question becomes, do, you know, do we want to do another sort of population scale epidemiological type resource like UK Biobank that isn't particularly enriched for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or schizophrenia or what have you? Or do, or do we want as our next step to make a more targeted investment in something that is more disease specific? So these are all sort of complicated, little messy discussions that we're having, but I'm confident that within the next six months or so, we'll have more clarity about where we want to go next. Yeah, I, I wanted to actually, it's a perfect segue into the discussion about disease areas. So the focus for this was on plasma because that's you know, what's available really. But I think you can learn a lot about a lot of organ systems from plasma. There are some like the brain, for example, that uh, aren't, aren't so uh, nicely represented, I think. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what areas of biology you did have a very good window into and which ones less so. I'm, I'm probably early, even though I, I sort of chaired the the consortium, I'm probably poorly placed to answer that because my uh, area of focus is neuroscience. And there's an irony there because of all the disease areas, it's probably least useful for neuroscience. The, I, I've done some uh, digging into the, the correlation between proteins in the periphery in blood plasma and, and proteins in CSF. And the correlation is not very high for most proteins. So there, there seems to be some sort of uh, silo between the two compartments, at least when you look at, you know, protein X and it's, it's analog in, in, you know, in, in the brain. Um, so, you know, the irony is that I've, I've used this data set quite a bit to find new stratification tools for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, schizophrenia, find new targets for those diseases, but it probably has more relevance for disease areas that I don't work in as much like, you know, yep. immunology, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. I know that other folks within J&J who focus on those areas are using the data set and I've found it quite useful, but I probably will be poorly placed to actually speak, get into the specifics around how they're using it. But certainly, you know, I've used it quite a bit for neuroscience and it's probably the least useful area to be in. For what, blood. what other, uh, are there other projects of comparable scale, 50,000 kind of people where you could get CSF or 
brain, you know, post, you know, postmortem brains. I I don't know much. Again, I don't know much about this uh, this uh, area of biology where you maybe do what if you wanted to do proteogenomics, uh, if, if that's the right word to describe it outside of UK Biobank, where where would you do something like that? Yes. So J and J has been working with uh, Gates Ventures for quite a while now. This is a, an effort that was uh, led by both Nerejan and, and Simon Lovestone to put together a more neuroscience-specific proteomics effort. And they're calling that the, the Global Neurodegeneration Proteomics Consortium. That's more centered around, it's a little more retrospective. It's bringing different neurology cohorts together, cohorts that have Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and ALS uh, participants with matched healthy elderly controls. And that's bringing together um, those cohorts. They are Most of them already have some logic data. And if they don't, then J&J uh, or Gates would, would fund the generation of some logic data. And it's it was just recently launched. So we don't have firm numbers yet on, on the total sample side, but it would probably be anywhere from 30 to 40,000 um, samples beginning. That, now, keep in mind that that's probably 30 to 40,000 blood plasma from neurology cases. The numbers for CSF are going to vary. And I would say just because it's so invasive to get CSF, we'd probably be lucky to hit the 10K mark. Um, most of the work that I've done for CSF proteomics has been much smaller scale. I collaborated with um, Oscar Hansen in Sweden, and there he has about 1,600 people from the BioFinder study with CSF. Um, so I think that if you, if you stitch together the different cohorts that have CSF around the world, you know, probably wouldn't be able to get to the same scale as what we did in UK BioBank, but you could probably hit the 10K. Right. And that's cere- cerebrospinal fluid for anyone who's wondering what the acronym means. I, you mentioned Matt Nelson, who I interviewed on a previous, uh, previous podcast. He made a really interesting point that he felt like right now the progress in genetics as it relates to drug discovery has been fairly incremental and that we mm-hmm. won't see a big leap forward until we're at the scale of maybe 100 million sequences even. And and to do that, you probably require testing to be in the healthcare system and linked with clinical data and, and other kinds of things. I'm wondering if you agree with that or if you if you see a path where generating a greater depth of data, whether through proteomics, metabolomics, scans, tissue-specific information allows us to hit some kind of breakthrough when it comes to drug discovery in particular that is orthogonal of just scale and getting to hundreds of millions of people. I, I think Matt is spot on, uh, at least as, as it concerns genetics as a self-contained tool. Funnily enough, the, even though you know he's published and, and Emily King and others have published on, on the um, utility of, of GWAS as a drug discovery tool, Oftentimes, most of the traction I've seen from biologists within, you know, industry R&D settings comes from the, the papers that flag rare variant associations. And obviously, to find those, you're going to need, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands really to scale up. You know, the, you know, one good example would be the APOE Christchurch uh, mutation. That was an end of one study in Colombia. And that, I, you know, that caused a lot of excitement. Um, amongst industry scientists, uh, you know, as it pertains to Alzheimer's disease. So, th- you know, that was good to see, but it was also a little frustrating because we spent so much time building these uh, very large-scale GWAS resources and then a, a paper that focuses on a single case study generates so much excitement. So I think I think Matt's spot on that, you know, genetics by itself will need to scale further and the progress has been incremental. But But you're right, that's exactly why trying to superpower genetics a little bit by combining it with these other multi-omics techniques I think we have seen progress uh, as it relates to combining genetics with proteomics. We have had 
a number of new drug targets come through, even internally at J&J uh, for neuroscience based on the UKB PPP data set. We've seen promising signs for new potential biomarkers. And I think, you know, it's very early stages, but I, you know, I mentioned earlier how well these proteins in combination can predict things like uh, BMI and liver and kidney function. I think that there's also a lot of promise to actually predict disease incidence with these proteins as well. We didn't look at it in the paper, but there's a really interesting preprint from the GSK group and Claudia Langeberg that does look at predicting disease incidence, 10-year incidence, uh, and found that the proteins in combination, you know, as, as, as few as five and as many as 20, and seem to do a much better job of predicting disease incidence versus, you know, clinical information and even in some cases, you know, uh, clinical, clinically validated biomarkers. So in that regard, I think that combining genetics with proteomics may get us there quicker and may, you know, address some of that incremental progress we've seen. I think we, we might start to see an acceleration of progress by combining genetics with other approaches. Interesting. Yeah. I, I maybe, maybe I'll um, try to reach out to Claudia and, and uh, see if I can hear a little bit more about that paper. I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about Mendelian randomization. Actually, you gave the PCSK9 example in the paper. We've, we've never had an episode that was totally focused on Mendelian randomization, although it has come up. But it is, a, you know, I, I think, a really important tool for drawing the link, especially with proteomics, from gene to protein to some phenotype that we're interested in uh, ultimately impacting. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how much that tool has become used in target discovery in particular, because I think it's quite an important one for you all. Yeah, I think that that's really the cornerstone tool, at least as it pertains to genetics it, it, uh, as, a, as a target discovery uh, target discovery tool. Explaining it to the biologists is often, you know, it, it can be tricky without getting into the complicated math. So I, I often just liken it to a clinical trial. Everybody has been sort of randomized already into uh, their own sort of drug or placebo group based on their genotype. So you can sort of uh, leverage that information and combine it with, uh, with protein information to infer whether a particular protein has a causal influence on disease or not. So usually I, when I present it to the biologists, I, I have a, you know, the, the typical breakdown of how a, a clinical trial works with the randomization of the placebo or drug, and then you test the drug on off effect, and then you, you compare disease outcomes. You know, doing it in a similar manner with Mendelian randomization, you, you, you look at genotype AA versus genotype BB, you look at the protein levels and you sort of look at disease outcomes to see whether there's a, a causal influence on the protein. Um, I think that we're starting to gain traction. And um, funnily enough, even, even the biologists who are less well-versed in genetics, oftentimes the number one question that they have when we discuss a new target is, well, is it, is it just correlated with disease or is it actually having a causal influence on disease? So we, we can really, really, it's, it's, a, it's an absolutely essential tool in that regard, but we can actually tell the biologist, we can actually give them an answer and say, yes, this, is, this does appear to have a causal influence on disease. Now, interestingly enough, what I've found from the UK Biobank data, and this, you know, disclaimer, this is mainly pertaining to the neuroscience indications, but what I've found is that the, the causal proteins for most of the diseases I'm interested in, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, schizophrenia, depression, most, not all, but the vast majority of the causal proteins are not differentially uh, cross-sectionally changed. So, you know, take the example of complement receptor one. That has a, I think that it's probably safe to say that that has a previously established causal relationship with Alzheimer's disease. 
And we, you know, we, we validated that with this data set, but it's not cross-sectionally changed when you look at Alzheimer's cases versus controls. And I've sort of seen that systematically across the board, uh, at least for, for brain illnesses. So that is an interesting phenomenon that I think we need to dig into a little further. Maybe it's, it relates to the, the temporal dynamics. Maybe we're not capturing the cross-sectional effects at the right time in disease. But yeah, I'm, I'm going on a little, little bit of a rant here, but I think that the, the shorter answer is that Mendelian randomization is a really useful tool to help us address whether a protein has a causal influence on disease or not. The question around is the protein having an active role in disease is still something that we need to parse in further. Right. Yeah, I, I was, this was one of the questions I was going to have about the paper. I, I don't remember whether you had multiple time points from any participants, but I was wondering whether you could speculate or if you did the you know, thought experiment with the group of what value it would have to have had that in the UK biobank, for example, over a period of years, or, you know, they could, in theory, you could probably have it over decades if the study was set up in a way. And I'm wondering if that logistically, when many of these population genomics programs are being set up new right now, our future health, all of us has been going for a little while, but the prospect of serial sampling is definitely something that could be done. But I think the question is always, what's the value relative to the logistical burden of doing, you know, long-term follow-up and recontact. I'm wondering if you had any, any thoughts on the value of that? I, I do. Yeah. So first of all, in, in terms of the logistics, I think that that is feasible. There are, are already some follow-up samples from the imaging visits. So, and I'm going to get a little bit boring and into the nitty gritty here, but obviously we have baseline collections from 2006 to 2009, the original recruitment period for UK Biobank. But uh, approximately 50,000 people came back for a scan, you know, between, yeah. I think, 20, you know, 2014 or something like that. And when they, when they underwent that scan, they gave another blood draw. So there is potential to look at that. We haven't looked at that yet. We didn't look at it in the paper, but there's absolutely potential to do it. There was also an announcement recently of, you know, quite a sizable amount of, of uh, private investment in UK Biobank. And I think that that will potentially allow them to reinvite everyone back. Uh, for an, another assessment and take another blood drop. So uh, in terms of the import, importance of doing that, I think it's absolutely crucial because, you know, I, I, I mentioned some of the challenges that, that I've experienced within industry when it comes to genetics, but there are, you know, similar challenges for proteomics. And one of the most common questions I get when I present the finding from the proteomics um, to a biologist in our therapeutic area is, well, how do you know that this protein is still up or down regulated if somebody came back a week later and gave their blood again? How do you know it's not related to the fact that they ran up and down the stairs before they gave their blood draw or they had the flu or something like that? That's a question that we can't you know, immediately address with the, cross, with the, the baseline kind of sort of cross-sectional analysis. So I think longitudinal profiling is going to be a crucial next step. You know, I mentioned already, we've been talking about full-scale profiling of UKB, ancestry-specific, disease-specific, but I forgot to mention that longitudinal piece, and I think it's going to be crucial. I was wondering about the brain scans in UK Biobank, actually. Have you done much work looking at those? Uh, Do you have a sense of of how they're being used? I have not spoken to anybody who's had much experience integrating those with genetics as well, so I thought I'd I'd ask him, and you've got quite a, a bit of past experience with that. Uh, absolutely. There's been a lot of work done on that. Folks like John Marchini and others have, have looked at this more systematically. They've sort of coined the term imaging derived phenotypes from UK Biobank and systematically derived, you know, things like uh, 
know, thickness of the, the prefrontal cortex or, you know, uh, volume of the, the hippocampus and run GWAS on, on those. During my time at Biogen, I worked with Ben Sun, who is the, the first author of the, the UK BPPP paper. We worked together on extracting a uh, measure of sulcal morphology, so, so you know, cortical folding and running GWAS on that. So there's a, there's a lot out there published already on the, the UKB brain scans uh, as it pertains to genetic regulation of morphology. And yeah, I mean, in, in terms of how we integrate that with proteins, that's, that's one of the next steps. It's one of the things I'm interested in as well. Whether there is a peripheral signal that can yeah. give any indication of uh, what's happening in the central nervous system, that's something we're looking into at the moment. It almost feels like a silly question to ask, but I feel like I have to ask it, which is how well brain organoids or other kinds of cellular systems might match what's going on in the actual brain. Because if you, ha- if you draw blood in the right way, you can make stem cells that you differentiate into some kind of um, you know, tissue that's closer to what you might be interested in. But obviously, if, you've got, if you're looking at Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or something, you've got 70 years of brain development and, and things going on that you can't recap in a dish. But I, I was curious whether, the, you know, you said the plasma proteome doesn't really match the brain because of some, you know, the, there, there may be a barrier between the two. But I'm wondering if that barrier is, a, is almost like a cellular phenotypic one or as a, a physical one in the sense of in the body that bra- there's no sharing of the proteins, but would there be a useful proteomic signature from a organoid, for example? I don't know if, if anyone's looked at that or if you've looked at that. So, uh, no, it's, it's a great question. I, I, in terms of whether it's a physical barrier, if it's something that's more sort of, you know, so I, th- I think it's both. I think it's both. There's a certain level of physical barrier, but we have seen some significant progress for blood-based biomarkers for neurological illnesses. And the example I always give is Phosphotel 217. And that's not something that we could pick up using an affinity-based proteomics method, at least not currently, right? That they, we can measure total tau with O-link or somalogic, but we can't measure P-tau 217, you know, sort of a post-translational modification of that protein. So I think that that's the, that's the first thing. I, I do think that we can capture some aspects of CNS biology in the periphery, but we may need to go beyond measuring sort of total protein levels and looking at protein isoforms. In terms of uh, organoids, I think there's a lot of promise there. I've, I've spoken with some companies who work on this. They sort of, you know, take iPSCs as well from, from schizophrenia patients or depression patients and can do quite a good job, actually, of, of predicting whether um, those patients are going to respond to a certain antidepressant or antipsychotic. I think that the rate limiting factor there is just true, but I think my level of interest is in what can we turn around quickly in the clinic? And, you know, doing that kind of work, it just takes a lot of time. Whereas my hope, sort of the pipe dream would be being able to do everything with a blood test. So I think my main area of focus over the next few months is going to be how can we scale up mass spec? Because mass spec gives us those PTMs. It could give us the next PTO217. Obviously, PTO217 is gaining a lot of traction as a biomarker a kind of minimally, minimally invasive biomarker for Alzheimer's. But I'd love if we found a similar marker for depression or for schizophrenia or, for, or even for Parkinson's. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just maybe drawing to a close here, given the time that we have, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what's next. What are you focused on? We talked a little bit about potential to scale the pharmaproteomics project, but I think you've got other irons in the fire. What are you most excited about over the next couple of years that, uh, that you can talk about? Yeah, I think one of the 
One of the areas that I am focusing a lot of attention on for the next uh, year or so would be on brain proteomics, so directly on brain tissue. We've already done some work with cerebrospinal fluid, but in terms of how much that actually reflects brain activity, we're not we're not entirely clear. So that'll be the next major step. Can we scale up brain proteomics? Carlos Grichaga from WashU has done some work on this already within about 400 brains, but can we do that at, at larger scale uh, with greater power so that we can find PQTLs that are directly relevant to brain illnesses and see uh, which of those PQTLs overlap with plasma or CSF-based PQTLs. So that's something I'm really excited about. In terms of next steps for population-scale proteomics, I do think that there will be scope to scale up to the full UK biobank. I think that UKB right now is is centralizing their lab to uh, to Manchester, I believe. So I think that the timing might be right to do something like that in 2025 or 2026. And I think at that point, that'll be the sweet spot where the technologies are probably optimized enough that they're capturing as much of the blood-based proteome that they can. And the cost might be at a a certain price point that would actually be attractive for uh, maybe pharma investment and maybe co-investment from some some public sources as well. So I'm excited about that, but that's sort of a longer-term vision in my mind. And in terms of what else, I think building prediction tools, I mentioned this already, I've probably talked about it too much, but um, taking these blood uh, proteomic data and running AIML, running sort of unsupervised clustering, determining whether we can find biological subtypes of diseases just, just with a blood draw. That's fascinating to me. And as I said, I think the work that Claudia and the GSK team, Robert Scott et al, shown preliminarily in their preprint is really, really encouraging. So trying to translate that and convince the folks within our biomarkers departments that are sort of less familiarized with these sort of population scale projects, convincing them that we could actually take these proteins and turn them into clinical tools, that's going to be a major area of focus for me for the next couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, amazing. Very exciting. And, uh, and Chris, thank you. I learned a ton from this conversation and I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you, Patrick. It's really fantastic. Great. And as always, thanks everyone for tuning in to listen. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And more importantly than that, share the episode with a friend and let them know that you liked it and uh, what you liked about it. Uh, Then maybe we'll get Chris back in a year or two when we've got the next big project to talk about. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time.